This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from comedian Lee Camp, The Rachel Maddow Show, a Best of the Left activism update, The Young Turks, The Progressive, The Majority Report, Counterspin, Truth Dig Radio, The Jimmy Dore Show, The Tom Hartman Program, and Moyers and & Company. And a note for our immunocompromised listeners, I am sick today, so listen with caution. I hate to be racist, I hate to stereotype, but let's cut the bull****, let's stop being politically correct just for a second, let's stop blowing smoke up each other's asses and tiptoeing around the truth, let's stop greasing each other's shuttlecocks and fluffing each other's fluffernutter sandwiches, that's an expression, right? Again, I'm sorry to be racist, but there's a certain kind of people in this country who are truly and utterly tearing it apart. They suck away our resources. They destroy our environment. They don't give a flying about anyone but themselves. They don't take care of their kids, and they reproduce like bunny rabbits during a blizzard with a refrigerator full of Cialis-laced carrots. That's an expression, right? No one wants to talk about it, but these people take our jobs, they take our benefits, destroy our futures, and expect us to take care of them when they need help. It's completely f***ed up and selfish, and let's be honest, I don't even think these people are human. I mean, they don't look human, do they? I'm talking, of course, about corporations. The Citizens United decision in the Supreme Court declared that corporations are people and that money counts as speech. So for the first time in my life, I'm a f***ing racist. I think an entire group of people should not be given the same rights as the rest of us, and most of America feels the same way. You know, there's a famous passage in Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice in which Shylock expresses that he's human, just like anyone else. He says, If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? We learned two things from that passage. A, yes, Shylock is a person just like anyone else. And B, I should never do Shakespeare. But here's the thing, ever since the Supreme Court decided this rancid, stinking, vomitous Citizens United case, I have spent most of my waking hours trying to tickle corporations. And you know what I've found? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. They don't, they don't giggle. They don't chuckle, chortle, snortle. They, this, this is not a peep. There's not a peep out of them. They, they, I've tried tickling them in the ribs. I've tried tickling them in the, in, the, in, the, in the nose, sticking a feather up their nose. They don't even have a nose. They don't have a and then, and then I tried that other part of the passage about making their bleed. And they don't even have a They're just giant holes. That's it. Giant holes. Corporations are not people. Yet we have bestowed upon them all of the rights of being a person and none of the responsibility. BP dumps 210 million gallons of oil into the Gulf of Mexico and they continue to operate essentially as the same as before. On the other hand, if Vinny, the guy who owns my bagel shop around the corner, had dumped 210 million gallons of oil into the Gulf of Mexico, chances are our court system would have sentenced him to no more Vinny. Corporate personhood is a nail in the coffin of this democracy. Get involved in stopping it. I knew I'd made a horrible call.
Hey, this is Lee Camp. I hope you've enjoyed having my Moment of Clarity rants pumped into your skulls. If you have, you would almost definitely love my free Moment of Clarity backstage podcast where I discuss the topics of the day. You know, the little things like the corporate raping and pillaging of our world. I also have on fun, awesome guests like this lady. My name is Janine Garofalo. This guy. Hi, I'm John Oliver. Even sometimes this guy. This is Greg Palace, and I've got my zipper caught in Moments of Clarity. Free at LeeCamp.net, iTunes, Stitcher, or the Android app. Plus, there's a Moment of Clarity book for those of you who thought, I love Moment of Clarity, but I hate how I can't lick it. Well, now you can. The Moment of Clarity book and ebook, get it at LeeCamp.net or on most e-reader platforms. And remember, keep fighting and stay angry. I in the summer of 2010, a Democratic congressman named Bruce Braley was running for re-election in the great state of Iowa. Bruce Braley was a two-term congressman. He'd won his previous race by a whopping 29-point margin. But then, then, Congressman Braley started seeing ads like this one run in his home district in Iowa. For centuries, Muslims built mosques where they won military victories. Now, they want to build a mosque at Ground Zero, where Islamic terrorists killed 3,000 Americans. It's like the Japanese building at Pearl Harbor. The Muslim cleric building the mosque believes America was partly responsible for 9-11 and is raising millions overseas from secret donors. But incredibly, Bruce Braley supports building a mosque at Ground Zero. Tell Braley what you think. Remember the Ground Zero Mosque nonsense? Remember all that? The Ground Zero Mosque nonsense controversy was a media sensation in the summer of 2010. Even though the building in question was neither a mosque nor was it located at Ground Zero, but that summer, Democratic Congressman Braley, campaigning for re-election all the way out in Iowa, was being bombarded with TV ads like that on that entirely made-up issue as if it was a real issue and as if he had anything to do with it, which he did not. It is the kind of thing a candidate might want to fight back against if he had any idea who it was who was fighting him that way. As you can see at the bottom of the screen there, the ads were being paid for by something called the American Future Fund. And this group, the American Future Fund, didn't just run the Ground Zero Mosque ad against Bruce Braley. They ran all sorts of ads against him. TV ads, radio ads, robocalls, good old-fashioned mailers, everything. Millions of dollars in ads and attacks spent in his Iowa district against Bruce Braley by this group. Even though he had won his previous race by 29 points, Congressman Braley only narrowly survived this assault in 2010. He had won by 29 points before. In this same district, he barely squeaked by with 2% this time around. So who did that to Congressman Bruce Braley and why? Who was bankrolling that huge effort against him? Who was putting up the money to run TV ads and radio ads and robocalls against him? Where did all that money come from? Largely, it came from here. A P.O. box located in the lonely Boulder Hills Post Office on the outer edge of Phoenix, Arizona? The American Future Fund, it turns out, which paid for that spending blitz against Congressman Bruce Braley, got a majority of its funding that year from a pretty much unknown pop-up organization called the Center to Protect Patient Rights. Have you already forgotten the name now that I just said it? Don't worry, you're supposed to. And don't bother trying to Google that name either. They do not have a website. In fact, they don't seem to have much of anything. When you try to figure out what this Center to Protect Patient Rights is, who they are, what their agenda is, Pretty much all you can come up with is this. P.O. Box 72465, Phoenix, Arizona, 85050. 
this grassrootsy sounding group that's funding millions of dollars of campaign ads, not just in Iowa, but against Democrats around the country. It's actually just a tiny mailbox located inside of this desert post office in Phoenix. That's it. Where does a post office box get tens of millions of dollars to spend? The LA Times wrote about this P.O. Box Invisible Group, this center to protect patient rights. Today, they wrote that that lonely post office box managed to shell out $55 million to conservative groups across the country in 2010. $55 million! Funding ads like that one that they aired against Democratic Congressman Bruce Braley in Iowa. Beyond that P.O. Box, though, nothing much is known about the group. They're supposedly run by a Phoenix-based Republican consultant who is a key operative in the Koch brothers' political activities. But in terms of where they got their $55 million to spend on that election, who knows? According to the Center for Responsive Politics, the donors to this P.O. Box in Phoenix, that's supposedly an organization, quote, are almost entirely unknown. Such tax-exempt organizations must detail the groups to whom they gave grants, but not the sources of their funds. So, ta-da. All voters get to know about whoever's trying to proverbially kill Congressman Bruce Braley with millions of dollars in false ads and mailers in Iowa is that they're housed here in Arizona at a nice little post office. Where's the money from? Who's going after him? Who do we blame for the ads being false? Talk to the P.O. Box, America. That's all you're getting. Thanks to the conservative majority and the United States Supreme Court, this is the American political system now. Unlimited and untraceable money. You are not a candidate running against some other candidate. You're a candidate running against a void that you cannot name, that you cannot fight back against because you can't name it, that you probably cannot keep up with dollar for dollar. It's not the age-old problem of running against somebody who's got deep pockets. That's an old problem. Our new problem is where you don't know how deep those pockets are you're running against. You don't even know whose pockets they are. If you like the way that that's already been working in these first couple of years after Citizens United, you're going to love how it plays out for the rest of this year. TodayPolitico.com reports that groups on the Republican side plan to spend a b b b billion billion dollars, that's billion with a B, to defeat President Obama this fall. And that is not including what the Romney campaign will spend. A billion dollars is an impossibly large number to wrap your mind around in politics. But here's some perspective. Karl Rove's groups alone are planning to spend nearly as much money this year as the entire John McCain campaign did last time around. The Koch brothers, the only link that we've got to that P.O. box in Phoenix, they're planning to spend even more than what the John McCain campaign spent in its entirety. The Koch brothers are planning on spending $400 million from them alone. More than the whole John McCain campaign spent in 08. How do outside groups on the Democratic side plan to compete with that? At least for now, they don't. One labor leader telling Politico.com for their story today, quote, We're not making any attempt to match American Crossroads or any of those groups with TV ads. Progressives can't match all the money going into the system right now.
Welcome to the Best of the Left Activism Update. My name is Lauren, and I'm the Activism Czar at bestoftheleft.com. As this election cycle progresses, we are becoming more and more aware that our democracy is in trouble. The passage of Citizens United is making it easier for corporations to control our governmental policies by buying our representatives. It is scary and serious, and we cannot let this happen to our country. This is why the folks at the Young Turks have launched Wolfpack, an aggressive solution to this insidious problem. The only way to stop Citizens United is to bypass the corporate-owned Congress and Supreme Court and pass a constitutional amendment. Wolfpack aims to pass a 28th Amendment saying that corporations are not people and they do not have the rights to buy our elections. At this moment, Karl Rove, the Koch brothers, and a handful of other billionaires have already bought enough members of Congress to render any resolutions, which simply call for Congress to amend the Constitution ineffectual. Fortunately, the Constitution provides an alternate path for amending it, which is to have two-thirds of the states call for a constitutional convention. While attempts to use this method has never resulted in an actual convention, calls for a constitutional convention have played a vital role in many previous successful campaigns to amend the Constitution. This was the case in electing senators. So what can you do? Right now, Wolfpack is launching their It Gets Worse campaign, and they need our help. Jank from the Young Turks can be heard speaking about this campaign at our link at bit.ly slash itgetsworsecampaign. Send us your stories, because there are a thousand of them across the country, and we want to hear them so that we can fix the system. We think the answer is Wolfpack. That's a super PAC we set up to make sure that corporations are not treated like human beings, because they are not. They do not have constitutional rights and that we publicly finance our elections so that all of our politicians don't go through these obvious bribes where they take money from these corporate powers and they do their bidding. Our system is fundamentally broken and you all have stories about that. So send us your videos and we will put them up on our new channel youtube.com slash wolfpackhq. The plan is to compile as many videos as they can to serve as a video petition to Congress in time for the Senate hearings scheduled for July 17th, which was called to investigate a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United. So go to upload.theyoungturks.com to upload your personal testimony. Try and keep your video under three minutes. Put It Gets Worse in the title included with your name and state for description. Lastly, speak from your heart. Topics could include local stories, personal experiences, important issues that are not being addressed in the media, or anything else you want to highlight. Together, we can reach this objective. We can have Citizens United overturned. We can make democracy a system with integrity again, one in which citizens, not corporations, will determine public policy. This has been a Best of the Left Activism Update. For more information about the links in this segment, please consult the show notes at bestoftheleft.com. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as 5 
$5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong, progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Show me something new, show me something new, show me something new, show me something new. Of course, a huge majority of this country is against Citizens United. That allows unlimited corporate spending in our elections. We think that it leads to corruption. And by we, I mean the American people here. In fact, let me give you a poll right off the bat here. 81% in a Greenberg, Quinlan, Rosner poll agreed that there is, quote, too much big money spent on political campaigns and elections today and reasonable limits should be placed on campaign contributions and spending. So, in politics, it doesn't get more of an overwhelming majority than that. 81%. Open and shut case. Now, of course, the Republicans in their entirety, almost, I should say, in their entirety, are in favor of Citizens United and love the corporate cash, love the unlimited money because it mainly flows to them. Now there are some principled Republicans and you have to give them a ton of credit. You know who one of them is? John McCain. Now there's a million things I disagree with John McCain on and I think he is a warmonger of the first degree and the first order. Having said that, on campaign finance, he has been excellent. He of course was one of the co-sponsors of McCain-Feingold that tried to limit uh, the amount of money pouring into politics. And it actually had a lot of positive effects until it was struck down by Citizens United. And John McCain has continued on the path for campaign finance reform. And he has unsolicited sent in a petition to the Supreme Court and filed a brief with them opposing Citizens United. And in fact, 22 other state attorney generals, including some Republicans, have also filed a brief saying that, hey, you know, when Montana's court said, Citizens United doesn't apply here because we have a 100-year law uh, against uh, corrupt practices and uh, we are going to uphold that law here and not allow corporations to give money in Montana because in the past when we did that, they just wound up bribing all of our politicians. Well, the Supreme Court is going to hear that case. So you've got 22 bipartisan uh, attorney generals, state attorney generals in favor of that. You got John McCain in favor of that. And then, of course, President Obama's administration has filed a brief as well, right? Oh wait, I'm getting word here that they have not filed a brief. Of course. It's only 81% of the country. And by the way, your former Republican opponent, which would have made for a great talking point and a great press conference. Got to give credit here to Miles Mogulescu, who wrote about this in uh, Huffington Post. And uh, he makes a great point. My God, imagine the press conference. The two former rivals from the 2008 campaign, flanked by 22 bipartisan state attorney generals all coming out and saying we agree with 81% of the country we've got to overturn Citizens United we've got to uphold that ruling in Montana and go even further because the state attorney generals just talk about Montana John McCain went further and said no you gotta overturn Citizens United recently retired Justice Stevens made a great point he said wait a minute now under the current rulings of the Supreme Court foreigners are not allowed to contribute to our campaigns but who owns the corporations who knows? In a lot of cases, it's foreigners. There's foreigners that are shareholders, oftentimes significant shareholders in companies. But we don't attract that. So there's an enormous logical inconsistency here. And as Justice Stevens and John McCain point out, since Citizens United, we have seen an avalanche of money, if not leading to corruption itself, which it certainly has, 
certainly leading to the appearance of corruption, because as Miles points out, 81% of the country thinks that our politicians are influenced too much by money. If that's not the appearance of corruption, I don't know what is. No one can say that that's not the appearance of corruption. So the Supreme Court was wrong. And they need to see that on a factual basis they were wrong and overturn that decision. Now, you don't need all of them to come to the light. You just need one of them. Justice Kennedy thought, no, that it will not lead to corruption or the appearance of corruption. If he is presented with evidence that it did, then perhaps he could be swayed. You know what might be helpful? The President of the United States of America. But apparently, he doesn't give a damn about this issue. Oh, he said something in the State of the Union message in 2010. Big whoop-de-doo. What have you done about it? You haven't done anything about it. Now, it's one thing to take the unlimited super PAC money yourself, which President Obama is doing. But I get it. If you say, hey, listen, I'm not going to do unilateral disarmament, that's an argument I could really get behind. I, I, I never want to do unilateral disarmament. If President Obama said, yes, I am taking unlimited super PAC money, but I will fight to make this, this a top priority in my election, and if I win a re-election, by God, we're going to go as hard as we possibly can with this bipartisan coalition. There's another bipartisan bill that's an amendment on this. Yarmouth Jones. Yarmouth is a Democrat from Kentucky. Jones is a Republican from North Carolina. They have joined together and said, hey, you know what? We need to make sure we get money out of politics. President Obama, are you going to do anything? And as I sit here, I blame myself for being naive enough every morning to wake up and hope that he's ever going to do the right thing or that he's a progressive in any way, shape, or form. And every day when I read the day's news, I get disappointed all over again. When am I going to get it through my thick skull? President Obama is not a progressive. He's not one of us. He doesn't give a damn. He takes unlimited money and most oftentimes does the bidding of his donors. He's part of this system. He's not going to overturn the system. This system made him president of the United States of America. This system eventually, today, but then is al he's already enormously wealthy, but eventually will make him insanely wealthy. Why would he overturn the apple cart that got him all the things that he needs? Well, look, to John McCain's credit, he is doing that, even though he is wealthy and connected and powerful, etc. Here's what I think is fair: that over the last two years, in an emergency situation, uh, our basic attitude was, "We've got to get some things done." But in order to do that. Basically, worked with the process as opposed to transform the process. And, and there's no doubt that that frustrated folks. But yes, we can. But yes, we can. But yes, we can. But. Yes, we can. In the old comedy Bananas, Woody Allen called something a travesty of a mockery of a sham. That description aptly applies to our campaign finance laws. Before Citizens United, the Supreme Court had already held that money was equal to speech. That was a travesty. Then in Citizens United, the court ruled that corporations and billionaires could give unlimited amounts to elect this candidate or trash that one so long as they weren't coordinating with a specific candidate. That was a mockery. Now comes the sham. 
These corporations and billionaires actually are coordinating with the candidates. A super PAC for Romney, Restore Our Future, uses the exact same political consulting firm as the Romney campaign itself, and Romney has spoken at an event sponsored by Restore Our Future and has even urged people to donate to it. Sure sounds like coordination to me. Barack Obama's not any better. He's urging people to donate to the super PAC called Priorities USA Action. He's asked cabinet members to fundraise for it. And this week, David Plouffe, Obama's campaign manager, is speaking to Priorities USA Action. Again, that sure sounds like coordination to me. It is a travesty of a mockery of a sham. And it's proving we don't have a democracy here in America. We have a banana republic. I'm Matt Rothschild. And that's how I see it. Last night I had a dream we were inseparably entwined Like a piece of rope made out of two pieces of vine Held together holding each other with no one else in mind Like two atoms in a molecule inseparably combined Tragic event, I must admit, but let's not be overblown I'm not trying to write a love song, that's a sympathetic moan And maybe I just need a change, maybe I just need a new cologne do you think a this is a position. good argument in the event that uh, President Obama is in a position to appoint the next uh, Supreme Court justice? Uh, do you think this is a good argument for uh, someone who has not been a judge? Or oh, absolutely. I think the problem is that we've let that court... Uh, become staffed entirely by uh, folks who are in the, uh, for want of a better word, it's the judicial monastery. And within that judicial monastery, the Republicans have worked very hard to staff it with people who have a specific purpose to advance a specific agenda. And so... um, I think if there had been one of those Republicans who'd actually been in an election, they would have known how foolish their decision was going to look, that the finding of fact they made was not only wrong to make the finding, but wrong as a matter of fact. It just was plain they found something as a fact that wasn't a fact, and that is that no amount of corporate spending could possibly cause either corruption or the appearance of corruption in the election. It's a, it's a preposterous notion. It paints a rather sort of terrifying vision of uh, just how thick and opaque that bubble that they must live in Doesn't is. It? I mean, and it's sort of terrifying Doesn't the idea, it? you know, because we're not talking about some type of arcane, uh, you know, uh, specialized yeah. aspect of, of plumbing or surgery or uh, Look, I've, I've of, been in politics. of anthropology. I've been a prosecutor. I've prosecuted public corruption cases. It's a very short leap to say, look, if you're going to allow anonymous corporations to spend unlimited amounts of money in uh, elections, the issue isn't just how they spend it. The issue is how they threaten to spend it. The scariest thing from a public corruption point of view about Citizens United isn't the coal industry running an ad against somebody someplace. It's the coal industry going into their office with their lobbyists and saying to them, here's the ad, pal. We're going to put $5 million behind it in your home state. Nobody will know we have our hands on it because it's going to come through Americans for peace, prosperity, and puppies. Right. And you're never going to be able to trace it back to us. And it trashes you. And, and the only way you can dodge that bullet is by voting right with us. 
And if the person chickens out and votes right, they will have been corrupted and they won't be a single election expenditure. There'll be nothing to trace. And the fact that the Supreme Court couldn't think through to that step is a very clear sign of how opaque that bubble is. Anybody who's been a prosecutor, anybody who's been in elective office would easily see that when you give corporations that power to do something, you give them the power to threaten that same thing, and that that becomes an unpoliced area of massive, massive opportunity for corruption. Is that the biggest problem that we have, not just in terms, I mean, uh, uh, the one way to view it is that this is an electoral, this corrupts the electoral process. The way you've described it sort of uh, describes the sort of corruption of the legislative process. Yeah, um, absolutely. Are there other elements that, that corrupt that legislative process? That's the worst, the ability to threaten. I mean, before Citizens United, if a corporation was mad at you, it could say, well, uh, we're going to max out our pack against you, right. $10,000. And then uh, our uh, executives are going to host fundraisers and raise money against you. Okay. You know, perhaps not the news you want to hear if you're a candidate, but it doesn't ruin your whole day. Right. Whereas if somebody comes in and says, $5 million is going up against you in your next election, it's 100% negative track, it destroys your reputation every way we can think of, and it's all because you're not voting right, so change your tune and we'll pull our punch. That's a very different threat. And when you open up the floodgates, you open up the threat. And presumably that threat comes also with uh, a lobbyist who gives you all the good reasons as to why you should be voting that way. You don't even really have to make the threat in some circumstances because candidates will become so attuned to it being out there that they'll pre-flinch. It's implicit. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. The winners of the 2002 election have been declared. They are big media. Of course, that's true with every election, though they don't like to call attention to it. When media talk about all the big money involved in campaigns, they're talking about largely money that flows to TV and radio stations from candidates for advertising. A light was shown on all this almost inadvertently on Public TV's nightly business report on April 2nd when a guest was asked about investing in Gannett. It's a good deal, said Greg Greenberg of TheStreet.com, because even though Gannett is known for newspapers, which are going the way of buggy whips, the company also owns TV stations. Quote, and TV stations are a very good asset in election years, with all that super PAC money buying commercials. Close quote. All right, of course, the host rejoined, election year with those TV ads. 
So there you have it, a clear explanation for media love of campaign season and probably some hint of their feeling about campaign finance reform. This is Kasha Anderson, Associate Editor at Truestig, and I'm excited to be talking with Lawrence Lessig, a law professor at Harvard Law School and director of the Edmund J. Safra Foundation Center for Ethics at Harvard University. Just to get your credentials out of the way, uh, he's also the author of at least eight books, by my count at least, including the new ebook One Way Forward, The Outsider's Guide to Fixing the Republic. How are you doing today, Professor I'm, Lessig? I'm very well. Um, can you set this up for us a little bit about the, the basic thrust of, of your latest work here? I know that our readers and our listeners are going to get a chance to get their hands on it, so uh, let's hear a little more about it. Yeah, so um, I wrote this book because um, it struck me that there was a basic misframing of what's interesting about politics in America today. You know, the kind of pundits want to frame everything as a conflict between the left side and the right side. Right. But I think increasingly the interesting conflict is between the inside and the outside. And, you know, the normal politics, the kind of politics of presidential elections and, and, and congressmen and senators is increasingly removed from a very genuine grassroots politics that's across the political spectrum, but on the outside of ordinary government. And what we've seen, if you think about, you know, maybe 12 to 14 years of American, recent American history, is wave after wave of this kind of outsider politics that I think is increasingly becoming more sophisticated. So I think the most recent round is the Occupy Wall Street, before that um, Tea Party, beginning at this period I sort of mark as beginning with uh, the, the Move On um, uh, campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I think that what's important is to recognize the potential of this outsider politics if it's, you know, reflective enough and careful enough to actually bring about fundamental change to the way our government works. And, and I, you know, my hope is, the reason I'm trying to encourage it, that change could actually um, save the government from what I think is this debilitating corruption, which now defines how it functions. So yours is a hopeful message. That's good. Yeah, finally. I mean, my most of my books are extremely pessimistic, so here we go. First time with hope. <laughs> um, yeah, when I was reading the description and, and parts of the book, um, let's say that the, the description on Amazon kicks off with something is clearly rotten in our republic uh, and, and goes on to talk about a sense of resignation shared by American voters with respect not only to their elected officials which, you know, the quote is, the best Congress money can buy, and I think a lot of people are, are feeling that way right now, and so on. But also regarding the democratic process itself, can you give us a little hope about the process while you're at it? Well, the process right now is so depressing because it's been so completely polarized, and we feel like we can't do anything except just scream to the other side. And the whole tribe of politicians that used to define the great politicians of our past, the kind of, you know, seasoned, mature, reflective, moderate politicians have disappeared. 
and and I think it it incre- you know for most Americans uh, you know most Americans are not polarized they're kind of uh, you know right in the middle bell curve of political attitudes but they are alienated because the kind of active Americans are extremely polarized um, so we have to give a we have to give that kind of middle a reason to want to um, engage again and I think one first step to doing that is to is to let them believe that there's something credible um, authentic about what government does, which they don't believe right now because they believe money buys results in Congress. And so, you know, that cynicism drives uh, attitudes and it drives behavior and it drives behavior to be disengaged. Right. And um, how would you trace the corruption in the political system as it as it's happening right now with Citizens United, with uh, super PACs? Um, where where did this emphasis on, on, you know, buyable Congresses and the like, where did that start in your mind? Or when. Yeah, what's, what's interesting is, um, you know, we kind of slid to it without anybody quite recognizing just how corrupt the system was becoming. Because the kind of corruption that we've got is not the Rob Lagojevich or Randy Duke Cunningham quid pro quo bribery. Like, I, I don't think any law, I, I don't think it's interesting to think about this as a problem of laws being violated. I don't think laws are being violated. Um, instead, this is a system of influence that has developed within the law. Um, but which is just as effective in delivering government favors and protections and benefits um, for special powerful interests as the old system of quid pro quo bribery was. Indeed, I think it's more effective, more destructive than anything which, you know, criminal acts um, might have facilitated before. And we were driven to it because of the enormous rise in competition between the Republican and Democratic parties for controlling Congress. You know, mm-hmm. so when Newt Gingrich took over control of the House in 1995 and, and, you know, the House became Republican-controlled for the first time in 40 years, um, uh, this set off this enormous competition between the Democrats and the Republicans to get control of Congress. And, and basically any means to raising the money necessary to do that became... Uh, the practice of both Democrats and Republicans. Um, and so they, they became fundraisers first and legislators second. And they spend 30 to 70% of their time raising money, not just for themselves, but to get their party back into power um, or to keep control once they've had it. And as they do that, they don't even recognize, because many of them haven't even been in Congress when it wasn't like this. Um, most of them weren't in a Congress before it was like this. They, they become... Um, they develop the sixth sense, this awareness about how what they do will affect their ability to raise money, and they begin to adjust themselves, shapeshift in ways that make it easy to raise money. And as they do that, because the money doesn't come from all of us, it comes from a tiny slice of the 1%, um, they bend their policies in favor of that tiny slice of the 1% and increasingly alienate the rest of America. And that dynamic is hard to get out of unless you sort of stand back and say, wait a minute, we've got a real problem here. You know, it's almost like Uncle Sam is an alcoholic and we need an intervention to kind of wake him up to this fact and get him to put away the addiction and get back to doing the job that we thought we elected him to do. And so you mentioned Occupy Wall Street, but what other forms might that intervention take and, and where is it coming from, do you think? Well, I think we've got to figure out how these outsider movements can build an alliance, you know, and an alliance not of people who all agree on the same things, but an alliance that recognizes the fundamental disagreements that exist, but um, 
believes that there's something they can work together for. So there's no common end, but there's a common enemy. And the common enemy is this corruption inside of our government that makes it impossible for either the left or the right to get what it wants. So this alliance has got to work on a strategy for forcing change inside of this government that eliminates that corruption. So a lot of strategies for doing that. Constitutional amendment is one. Getting Congress to, to change the way we fund elections is another. Um, but the first step is the kind of, is a recognition and um, practice by these different outsider grassroots groups to band together for this purpose of reclaiming some integrity for this government. And, and that's going to be extremely hard. I don't min- want to minimize you know, how difficult that is. But I'm optimistic because I think that if we did that, uh, we actually do have the power still um, to to reclaim this control, and, and it would be enormously significant if we could do that. And a lot of your research, I gather, is on institutional corruption, and and you're speaking to that right now. Um, along those lines, I'm curious what you'd have to say, because Obama's defenders often argue that his hands, and basically those of anyone in his position or high up in, in our political system, are tied um, that he's kind of thwarted by the system itself. Do you buy that, or do you think that he just hasn't exercised the amount of influence in, you know, positive change and kinds of ways that, that he promised in 2008? Well, I think that it's certainly understandable that he feels like he needs to encourage his own super PAC, just like it was understandable in 2008 that he would give up public funding and instead fund his elections, um, exclu- his, his campaign exclusively by, uh, by his own uh, means. Those things are understandable. What's not understandable to me, and, and really not forgivable here, is that he's had three years to propose and take leadership um, um, uh, to change the basic corruption of the system. You know, and this was not, it's not like this was not an issue for him when he ran for president. Indeed, in my view, this was the central argument that made everything else that he said believable, right? That, you know, a guy who comes in and says he's going to, um, you know, deal with global warming, he's going to deal with uh, the um, problem of uh, energy, he's going to deal with the problem of health care, he's going to take on food safety issues, he's going to deal with uh, financial crisis in a way that regulates Wall Street differently. You know, a person who thinks that he's going to do those things without including in that mix fundamentally changing the way we fund elections would be a crazy person. Nothing believable about those kinds of reforms without reforming the way we fund elections. And he said again and again, we need to take up the fight to change the way Washington works, to stop the lobbyists from having this kind of influence. But three years into the administration, he has yet to propose a single bill that would make a substantial change in this underlying economy of influence. So I don't doubt his, politi- his, his advisors are right that this is what he's got to do to get elected, but I don't think he should escape uh, criticism for his failure to take leadership to deal with the problem, which he said was the problem that would block him or anybody from getting anything done inside this government. Right, and so um, we'll probably have to wrap with this, but looking forward, you know, people who are inspired and, and rallied by what you have to say and, and by your book, where, what can they focus on first, do you think? Where can they go um, the, the the first wave of Occupy Wall Street has taken hold, and there's you know obviously conversations about where that's going to head. Where would you recommend people look for starters? If there's a place online or you know a particular political figure, I think people are looking for something concrete to kind of grab onto. You know, yeah, and um, and there's no simple 
concrete thing to do. It's not like one tweet is going to save our nation. Um, <laughs> but I, I think people need to become involved in groups that they feel tight with, you know, on the left or on the right, and to push those groups towards this kind of alliance. So, um, you know, the alliance is the work that we're doing uh, at Root Strikers. You know, so Henry David Thoreau's quote, for every thousand hacking at the branches of evil, there's one striking at the root. Um, we believe this money corruption is the root, and it explains every other branch of evil that people are hacking at. We've got to get people to recognize this. So RootStrikers.org tries to do that. There's a fantastic group that uh, we're affiliated with called uh, United Republic, which uh, is in the business of facilitating the coalition among these different groups to push towards this objective of fixing the corrupting influence of money inside of politics. Um, so those are, you know, immediate things people can go and join. But I think the hard work is the work of convincing, you know, citizens, fellow friends, um, of the need to pay attention to this core corruption problem and to push hard to solve it. Mm-hmm. And that means to get unions to focus on it, to get environmentalists to focus on it, to get the Tea Party to focus on it. Whatever your issue is, you need to get people to recognize that this too has got to be your issue or none of us are going to get anything we want from this from this government. This week, Americans are celebrating the 4th of July, as well as the 2nd, 3rd, 5th, and 6th of July. (laughs) And millions of people without jobs have been sitting outside enjoying the hot weather since last August. (laughs) Independence Day weekend is a time to appreciate our country and the democratic system of government that allows us to live in freedom. But as we know only too well, freedom isn't free. It costs millions of dollars. And the more millions you have, the more freedom you can buy. (laughs) And the people with billions of dollars are the freest people of all. To those who ask, well, what about the people who only have thousands of dollars or even just hundreds? But that's what makes this country so unique among nations, is that no matter who you are or where you come from, you can waste your entire life fantasizing about money. But just as not everyone can become a singing sensation on American Idol, though it sure seems like it sometimes, (laughs) only a few select private citizens possess the vast amounts of wealth it takes to control all three branches of government. Democracy really is a miraculous thing. And we know this because when something good actually happens, it always feels like a miracle. Even though our fate is largely in the hands of... Even though our fate is largely in the hands of corrupt, arrogant, and ruthless sociopaths, this is still the greatest country in the world. As far as we know, we really don't know much about other countries. <clears throat> anyway, let's get drunk. Yeah. Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. 
In addition to the case that we were, that, that Shane was describing at, at some length here, the, the, um, the, the SB 1070, the whole, you know, Arizona Papers, Please law, the Supreme Court also today did what I think is probably, I think history is going to look back and say that was really the most important moment. The Supreme Court back in 1856 ruled that people are property. It was, you know, Dred Scott versus Sanford, and, and in that case, they ruled that slaves were actually the property of their masters, and that, you know, to, just like end of debate, okay? This is it. And arguably, that 1856 decision of Dred Scott led right to the Civil War. And in 2010, the Supreme Court ruled the same, only opposite. Instead of ruling that people were property, in 2010, the Supreme Court ruled that property is people. And Citizens United, corporations, property, are the same thing as people. And it's just as bad a decision in my mind, and is taking this country just as close to a civil war. Well, perhaps that's a bit of an overstatement. I, I don't think that we're going to have a shooting war in America, although, I mean, tell that to, to the people standing around Gabby Giffords. Uh, but we'll, we'll see. In any case, I, I, I'm, I'm not expecting that. But dividing America, shall we say. The Supreme Court basically said, yeah, corporations are people, money is speech. You know, we've got to, to open this thing up. And so Montana has had this law for over 100 years. In fact, it goes back to 1897, as I recall. I've got the, yeah, here it is. William Clark was a copper billionaire. And it was 1899. And he, the, the Governor Brian Schweitzer of Montana told us this story on the air a week or so ago here on this show, how William Clark, the copper billionaire, this is Anaconda, Anaconda Copper, I believe, or maybe it was a different name at that time, but you know, the, big, the, the copper was king in Montana. And back at that time, the way that you got into the United States Senate is your state legislature had to appoint you. Or that's, at least that's how it worked in Montana. The, the federal constitution simply said that the states had to decide how they were going to send senators, and in most cases the state senate or the state house and senate would simply appoint them. In the case of Montana, it was the state senate. And what William Clark did is he stood outside the legislature and said, or he, came, he, he said it right out loud, anybody who votes for me for senator will get $10,000. And he literally passed out envelopes with $1,000, bills in them to legislators after the vote as they walked out of the chambers in Montana. Now, this hit the newspapers and it so horrified the actual United States Senate that Montana would do this, that when William Clark came, to, came here to Washington, D.C., the United States Senate refused to seat him at first. Said, sorry, you can't, you can't sit here having been you know, bribed. And this is what, in, in large part, led to the passage of the 17th Amendment about a decade and a half later, which, which says that the citizens of the state will elect the United States senators rather than the state legislatures appointing them, because rich guys were buying their way into office. So Montana had this incredible history of seeing the impact of big money corrupting their legislature and corrupting their laws and corrupting even a United States senator, or vice versa, the United States senator, the guy who bought the Senate seat corrupting the state. They were so clear about this 
that they passed a law over 100 years ago. They passed a law that said that corporations, like the big copper mine, can't give money to political candidates. That law, of course, is contradicted by the Citizens United ruling. The law was challenged by a uh, right-wing group in Montana, and uh, the right-wing group being the American Tradition Partnership. And it went up to the state Supreme Court, and the state Supreme Court said, hey, <laughs> you want proof that this causes corruption? that money in politics causes corruption, and they gave this long list, it ran like three pages long, of incident after incident after incident, all the way back to the 19th century, of legislators being corrupted by money. And they said, you know, and so the state Supreme Court said, we're going to let this law stand, even though the Supreme Court has passed Citizens United, we're going to let it stand because we can prove a harm. And in Citizens United, Citizens United explicitly says, quote, Independent expenditures, including those made by corporations, do not give rise to corruption or the appearance of corruption. End of quote. That's right out of the Citizens United ruling. Why? You know, money, corporate money, hey, you know, as, as Governor Schweitzer said, what could happen? Right. Well, what could happen is pretty obvious. And John McCain, Republican, and Sheldon Whitehouse, Democrat, signed on with Montana Attorney General Steve Bullock, this uh, article by Benji Sarlin over at TPM uh, website to to fight this thing, and the Supreme Court today said this is sort of a non-ruling. They didn't actually rule on the case. They didn't hear arguments. They didn't hear debate. What they said was, "We're not going to hear this case." And Stephen Breyer issued a dissent about that. Do I have this right, by the way, Shano? I don't. Okay, tell me what I'm missing. Um, they did. They, they, they granted certiorari. So, right. But okay, they, so they technically heard the case. Well, they, did, they didn't. They, they ruled on it just without hearing anybody, without any briefs, without any argument. They just said uh, the, the Montana Supreme Court's reversed. Right. Okay. That's it. It's okay. over. Right. right. And, and, and uh, Breyer issued a dissent in this and, in which he, uh, he seemed rather upset. He said, uh, even if I were to accept Citizens United... This court's legal conclusion should not bar the Montana Supreme Court's finding made in the record before it that independent expenditures by corporations did, in fact, lead to corruption or the appearance of corruption in Montana. And he, he says, given their history and political landscape in Montana, they, they had a compelling interest in limiting corporate money. In all the hullabaloo over the Supreme Court's decision on health care, another of its rulings quickly fell off the public radar. Before deciding the fate of the Affordable Care Act, the court announced it would not reconsider Citizens United. That's the odious 5-4 to four decision two years ago that opened our elections to unlimited contributions. 
Within minutes of that announcement, right-wing partisans were crowing about the advantage they now own, an advantage not due to ideas or personalities, but to the sheer force of money. They were remarkably candid and specific. Here's what Fred Barnes wrote in the Weekly Standard about the Senate race in Missouri. Quote, For three weeks in May, Republican super PACs took turns attacking Democratic Senator Claire McCaskill in TV ads. Republicans hadn't held their primary. It's not until August 7th. But McCaskill wound up trailing all three of the GOP candidates in polls. Now McCaskill, unnerved, is struggling to recover. That's what super PACs can do. When they emerged in 2010 and worked in tandem, they were a critical force in the Republican landslide in the congressional elections. This year, they're playing an even bigger role. The size and reach of their efforts dwarf what they did two years ago. Had a boy, Fred, for telling it like it is, for exposing the hoax that the court's original decision was about free speech. Free speech, my foot. It's about carpet bombing elections with all the tonnage your rich paymasters want to buy. Try not to laugh when you hear one of its perpetrators, the noted lawyer Floyd Abrams, say, as he did not too long ago, I don't think we should want as a matter of policy to make decisions which are essentially people can't do all the speaking that they can in a political campaign. I don't think we can ration speech. Excuse me, Floyd. Speech is already rationed. On your playing field, those who have no money have no speech. And just who do you think is doing this speaking? Hello, poor people, are you there? It's your election too, all 50 million of you. Hello, we can't hear you. Better get a super PAC and speak up. Poor people haven't lost their voice. They can't afford a voice. And everyday working people, universal laryngitis, the chronic absence of money. And if free speech is a right, why all the secrecy? Why hide from voters where the money is coming from? Why not openly say you're downright proud to be exercising your First Amendment rights and that writing checks is your patriotic duty? Instead, conservatives across the country are fighting to keep their sugar daddy secret. According to their guardian angel in Congress, the highly leveraged Senate minority leader Mitch McConnell, the right wing opposes disclosure laws because the super rich just might be bullied and harassed by the rest of us who want to know Who's buying our elections? So that the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal asks us to have pity on billionaires and those little old corporations and their CEOs who just might have their tender feelings hurt if they were exposed to boycotts and pickets were it known which candidates they were buying. Wait a minute. Weren't we taught the First Amendment also guarantees the right of citizens to assemble and petition, even to boycott and picket? That's what a couple of hundred protesters were doing the other day. They marched to the D.C. offices of American Crossroads and Crossroads GPS. Those are the right-wing money mills run by the mastermind of much of this massive fundraising, Car Road. He's making a bundle himself, buying and selling free speech, while at the same time deploring the disclosure of big donors' names as shameful intimidation. Exercising their First Amendment rights, the demonstrators take the kind of wanted poster on Rove's office door, indicating they would like to see him wearing an orange prison jumpsuit. Instead, he could be seen last weekend in casual wear, buzzing around in a golf cart at Mitt Romney's Utah Mountain Gathering of High Rollers. No doubt, 
plotting how to raise more millions to pay for more free speech. Let's see if we've got this right. On the one hand, conservatives declare that corporations and the super-rich can spend all they want on exercising their First Amendment rights. But on the other, they demand to keep it secret so the rest of us can't exercise our First Amendment rights to fight back. Have you ever heard of more cowardly lions? It's one big joke, big enough to make you cry. Three things don't go together. Money, secrecy, democracy. And that's the nub of the matter. This is all a sham for invalidating democracy in the name of democracy. It's the trick authoritarians always use to hide their real intention. In this case, absolute power over our public life and institutions, the privatization of everything. The Supreme Court is pointing the way. Instead of mitigating the worst excesses of both the state and private sector, the court has taken sides, saying to the massed wealth of the 1%, America is yours for the taking, for the buying. That's what George III thought, too. Which brings us back to our celebration of the 4th of July to the Declaration of Independence and Thomas Jefferson, who seems to have thought that a little uprising now and then would be good for what ails us. This time... The overweening power is not the monarchy, but plutocracy, the convergence of the political, religious, and corporate right that would keep us in the dark about where all that money is coming from and who it's buying, until one day we wake up and our country is no longer our own. Fortunately, those orange jumpsuits come in one size fits all. So remember, moneyed lords and ladies, what King George learned the hard way. You can only push your subjects so far. I love the show. I wanted to get your thoughts on something I've been learning about recently. There's a social psychologist named Jonathan Haidt, that's H-A-I-D-T, and uh, he argues that when people moralize, moralize an issue, they're less likely to acknowledge evidence that goes against their side of the issue. I uh, guess a TED Talk on the subject and a really good interview with Bill Moyers. So take a pro-lifer, for example. If you believe abortion is murder, if you actually believe that, no logical argument is going to change your mind. If we as liberals really care about the truth, we should be willing to change our minds in the face of new evidence. So, if Jonathan Haidt is correct about the way we as human beings respond to moral sentiment, we should avoid framing issues in moral terms. Here's the dilemma, though. Moral rhetoric is powerful rhetoric. The person who's arguing that abortion is murder is making a simple, gut-level appeal that feels right to them, and it makes it right to many people if they don't think about it. And it looks a heck of a lot stronger than the person saying, well... I think abortion is moral in some circumstances because of the autonomy a woman is titled to over her own body, but it isn't really a moral issue. Um, the other problem is that when it comes to issues like abortion or gay rights, I really just can't make myself believe that it isn't a moral issue. I, I believe that it's morally wrong to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation, and that it's morally wrong to deny a woman the right to make her own medical decisions. So it's a complex, nuanced intersection of values with efficacy, and I was just wondering if I could get your take on this issue and maybe the perspectives of some other listeners. So uh, thanks a lot, and I love the show. Uh, keep fighting the good fight. 
Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or an activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. And a special thanks to Corey today uh, for the voicemail you just heard for reminding me that I've been wanting to talk about this Bill Moyers interview for a while and uh, just hadn't got around to it yet. And it works out well because uh, since I'm sick today and my voice hurts uh, to talk, um, I'm actually going to play some clips from the uh, interview that he's referring to with uh, Jonathan Haidt, and, uh, and and basically what you're going to hear is a lot of what I would have been saying if I was just commenting, because these are the highlights uh, that I particularly like. I certainly uh, encourage anyone to check out uh, the full interview on uh, the Moyers and Company podcast. The episode is called uh, How Do Conservatives and Liberals See the World? So I don't know that I have a whole lot of answers as to what all of this means, what you're about to hear, and, and how to deal with it, but I totally agree with Corey in that I'm interested in hearing uh, responses from everyone else and any thoughts that come to mind. Uh, please consider calling in, and uh, we'll see what sort of a conversation starts from this. So this is the interview, uh, as I said, with Jonathan Haidt, and he's talking about sort of how the parties, Republicans and Democrats, are so divided that they basically don't see eye to eye on anything and and sort of the broader picture of how humans divide themselves into groups, and it goes from there. Groupishness is generally actually good. Uh, a lot of research in social psychology shows that when you, when you divide people into teams uh, to compete, they love their in-group members a lot more, and the hostility towards out-group members is usually minimal. So sports competitions, you know, I, I'm at a big football school, UVA, uh, you know, University, of Virginia. University of Virginia, and you know, uh, the other team comes, there's you know, some pseudo-aggression in the stands, you know, hostile motions, but you know, that night there aren't bar fights when everybody's drinking together downtown. That's the way sort of healthy, normal, groupish tribalism works. Um, but the tribalism evolved ultimately for war, and when it reaches a certain intensity, that's when the, sort of the switches flip the other side is evil. They're not just our opponents, they're evil. And once you think they're evil, then the ends justify the means. And you can break laws and you can do anything because it's in the service of fighting evil. So take the subtitle, why good people are divided by politics and, mm -hmm. and, and religion. Why are they? And what does the righteous mind have to do with it? Politics has always been about coalitions and teams fighting each other. But those teams, they, those teams were never evenly divided on morality. Um, now, well, basically it all started, as you well know, on the day Johnson signed the, the Civil Rights Act. Uh, you, you tell me what he said on that day. I think I heard you say this once. He actually said to me that evening, I think we've just turned the South over to the Republican Party for the rest of my life and yours. Yeah. And he was prescient. That's exactly what happened. So there was this uh, anomaly for the 20th century that both, both parties were coalitions of different regions and interest groups, but there were liberal Republicans, there were conservative Democrats. So the two teams, they had, they were, there were people whose moralities could, could meet up, even though they were playing on different teams. And once Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act and the South, which had been Democrat because Lincoln had been a Republican, so once they all moved over to the Republican Party, uh, and then the moderate Republicans began to lose office in the 80s and 90s, and the last, the last one's going just recently, for the first time we have an ideologically pure division of the parties. And now, this groupish tribalism, which is usually not so destructive, we can usually, you know, when you leave the playing field, you can still meet up and be friends. But now that it truly is a moral division, now the other side is evil. And there's nobody, there aren't really pairs of people who can match up and say, well, come on, we all agree on this, let's work together. The replacement of the greatest generation by the baby boomers. Greatest generation fought World War II, That's came right. home, 
built the country, ran the economy, people's politics, and uh, created this consensual government, you're talking Exactly. About. These are people who joined groups, had civic, a sense of civic responsibility, uh, participated in the democratic process. And so these people, as they moved through, I mean, they could disagree. Politics has always been, been uh, contentious. Um, but at the end of the day, they felt they were part of the same country, and in the Senate and the House, they were part of the same institution. They're replaced by the baby boomers, and what's their foundational experience? It's not responding together to a foreign threat. It's fighting each other over whether this country is doing evil or good. So you get the good-evil dichotomy about America and about each other happening in the 60s and 70s. When these people grow up, assume political office, now you've got Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich. It's a lot harder for them to agree than it was for Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan. So we, got to, we get to the culture wars, right? So That's right. abortion, prayer in schools. And, That's right. And that becomes... That, that, conflict becomes very polarizing. Exactly. And exactly. that's because of the baby boomers? And well, the baby boomers, I think, are more prone to Manichaean thinking. Manichaean thinking. Good Manichae and evil. That's right. Manichaeus was, a, I think, a third century Persian prophet who preached that the world is a, is a battleground between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. And uh, uh, everybody has to take a side. And some people have sided with good. And of course, we all believe that we've sided with good. But that means that the other people have sided with evil. And when it gets so that your opponents are not just people you disagree with, but when it gets to the, the mental state in which I am fighting for good and you are fighting for evil, it's very difficult to compromise. Compromise becomes a dirty word. So let me play you an exchange mm -hmm. between House Speaker John Boehner and Leslie Stahl on 60 Minutes. Take a look at this. We have to govern. That's what we were elected to but do. But governing means uh, compromising. It means working together. It, it means also find, means compromising. It means finding common ground. Okay, is that I compromising? Clear, I am not going to compromise uh, on my principles, nor am I going to compromise the will of the American people. And you're saying I want common ground, but I'm not going to compromise. I don't understand that. I really when you don't. Say the, when you say the word compromise, yeah. uh, a lot of Americans look up and go, oh, well, they're going to sell me out. And so finding common ground, uh, I think, makes more sense. I reminded him that his goal had been to get all the Bush tax cuts made permanent. So you did compromise? Uh, we found common ground. <laughs> Why won't you say? You're afraid of the word. I reject the word. The first step that we all need to take is to understand that the other side is not crazy. Uh, they're not holding their positions just because they've been bribed or because they're racist or whatever evil motives you want to attribute. So what I'm hoping my book will do is kind of give people almost a decoding manual so they can look at anything from the other side and instead of saying, see, this shows how evil they are, you say, oh, okay, I see why they're saying that. Hmm. All right, so let's take uh, stop punishing success, stop rewarding failure. I remember okay. seeing that at one of the early Tea Party rallies. So that's one ver version of fairness, fairness as proportionality. What do you mean? Uh, well, um, if people work hard, they should, they should succeed. If people don't work hard, they should fail. And if anyone bails them out, that is evil. You should not bail people out who uh, have failed, especially if it's because of lack of hard work, something like that. So as the right sees it, government is evil because it keeps punishing success uh, with redistributive policies, take, take from the successful and give to the unsuccessful, and it keeps rewarding failure by giving out welfare and other payments to people who aren't working. So what I've found is that fairness is at the heart of both Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party, but because the words have different meanings and they relate to additional moral foundations, that's why they're really very, very different moral views. The conservative moral position is the Protestant work ethic. It's karma. 
What do you mean by it? So karma, um, karma is a Sanskrit word uh, uh, for literally for work or, or fruit. That is, if you do some work, you should get the fruit of it. If I help you, I will eventually get the fruit of it. Even if you don't help me, something will happen. It's just a law of the universe. So uh, Hindus traditionally believed it's that the universe will balance itself, right itself. It's like gravity. If I am lazy, good for nothing, uh, you know, lying scoundrel, the universe will write that and I will suffer. But then along comes liberal do-gooders and the federal government <laughs> to bail them out. So I think the conservative view, for social conservatives this is, is that basically liberals are trying to revoke the law of karma, almost as though, imagine somebody trying to revoke the law of gravity and everything's gonna float away into chaos. I wanna to go to a very important moment in an early Republican debate that seems to me to go to the heart of what you were writing about in terms of moral psychology and how the conservatives see it. This was a question uh, to Ron Paul. Yes, Let's play that. it. Let me ask you this hypothetical question. A healthy 30-year-old young man has a good job, makes a good living, but decides, you know what? I'm not going to spend $200 or $300 a month to, for health insurance because I'm healthy. I don't need it. But, you know, something terrible happens. Uh, he, all of a sudden, he needs it. Who's going to pay for if he goes into a coma, well, for example? In a, in a who, who pays for that? In a society that you accept welfareism and socialism, he expects the government to take care well, of it. what do them. you want? But what he should do is whatever he wants to do and assume responsibility for himself. My advice to him would have a major medical policy, but not before. But he doesn't have that. He doesn't have it, and, he's, and he, needs, he needs intensive care for six months. Who pays? That's what freedom is all about, taking your own risk. This whole idea that you have to prepare and take care of everybody. But, Congressman, are you saying that society should just let him die? No. This is a perfect example of, of what the culture war has turned into. It's a battle over ideas about, about fairness versus compassion. Um, so the reason that that video went viral is because of the applause at the end. So I got sent this video by a lot of people because, oh my God, these Republicans are so heartless. They're so evil and cruel and terrible. But it's exactly Aesop's ant and the grasshopper. That grasshopper fiddles away all the summer while the ants are working and working and working, preparing for the winter. The grasshopper says, oh, you're being silly, working so hard. And then winter comes, the grasshopper comes, knocks on the ant's door, and he's starving to death, he's freezing, he says, take me in, feed me. And as some liberals see it, the point of the ant and the grasshopper is that the ants are supposed to feed the grasshopper. But that's not what Aesop meant, and that's not what most Americans think it means. So what they're applauding for there, and what they're saying, yeah, let them die, the reason they're saying that is because they want a world in which karma functions. This guy made a choice. He made a choice to be a free rider. He made a choice to not buy health insurance. And if, if karma works as it should, no one will pay for it and he will die. Now, if you, care, if, if you value the Care Foundation, that is extremely cold. But if you value fairness as proportionality, that's what has to happen. What did Aesop mean? Aesop meant uh, that you better take care of yourself because if you don't, uh, uh, if you're lazy and you expect others to take care of you, you deserve to die. You deserve to be left out in the cold. And that's why welfare has always been so contentious. Because on the left, they think it's doing good bringing money to their sacralized victim groups. But on the right, it's doing bad because it's encouraging dependence, it's discouraging hard work, it's rotting away the Protestant work ethic, and it's encouraging irresponsibility.
So that's it. Pretty interesting stuff. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you've been listening to the show for a little while, maybe you've heard me talking about uh, various subjects in various ways that sounded sort of uh, inspired by this interview, and that's because they probably were. And uh, and I, as I said, I think this could be a pretty interesting uh, conversation starter. So if you have thoughts on this, the number to dial again, 206-202-3410. So that is it for today. I just want to thank all of the members and donors who support the show financially. That is absolutely how the show survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and by spreading the word of individual clips you particularly like through your social networks. All that can be done through the website. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining with us on Facebook and Twitter and get details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music you Used in this and every episode. All that information is always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black now black and white took a part in picture that wasn't right on a shiny Oh, oh, oh. We'll take you out